0: let's pray. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in Your sight. O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. This sermon is about prayer and it is about how God works even when we are not aware of how He is working. From time to time, I hear non-Christians talk about what constitutes answered prayer. And most times, the only kind of prayer that they will accept as answered prayer is a miraculous answer where God sets aside the laws of nature in response to a specific request. And their point being, since they have never seen a miracle, God does not answer prayer. And that supports their contention that God does not exist. I firmly believe that God is a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. But I I also admit that I have not often seen God the laws of nature in response to my prayers. I can only point really to one answered prayer that I can explain no other way except miraculous where God suspended the laws of nature. Uh, I led a guy to Christ who um, later was found, he had a tumor in his mouth and uh, they had done a biopsy. It was cancerous, and the doctor said, "You need to come in and have this tumor cut out um When the doctor performed the operation and I had prayed for him, you know uh to be healed I'd also prayed he had asked me to pray that he would uh if if the cancer had spread that he would um he would receive that news with joy and trust in the Lord. But I prayed for him to be healed. He went, I had to, took him to the operation because he was legally blind. When the doctor performed the operation, he could not find any trace of the tumor. Uh, he had the x-rays that he had taken previously. He had the biopsy, the results of the biopsy that he had taken previously. But he found no tumor in his mouth. Whereas the week before, he had examined him and had seen the tumor. And so the doctor was completely befuddled. And so I think God suspended the laws of nature and removed that tumor from Lee's mouth. But as I say, that's the only time where I can specifically recall where God has, without a doubt in my mind, answered my prayers with a miracle. So... If you want a pastor who's able to pray and somehow move God to work miracles in the lives of everyone in the congregation or in your life in particular, I'm not your guy. (laughs) However, I do believe in answered prayer. What is answered prayer? Well, I'm not going to try and give that answer... um, Exhaustively, Rather, I'm just going to point to a few examples of how God has answered prayer in my own life. I can testify that every major decision that I have made since I became a Christian has been made in prayer. And I'm not simply saying that I prayed about it. I'm saying that I made the decisions as I was talking to God about the decisions that was before me. I made the decisions in prayer. Actually, there was one decision that I made that was not made in prayer. It was the decision to send our children to public school, which seemed at the time when we were living in South Carolina like a no-brainer. I prayed about the decision, but did not make the decision in prayer. And I have come to regret that decision in the deepest part of my heart. And so I pass that along for any of our young families who, as you make that decision, make sure you make it in prayer before the Lord. I have seen many answers um, to prayer while taking my decisions to the Lord. But over and beyond the decisions um, that God has, has given me, I've also seen God do many things that I believe with all my heart are answered prayers. But a non-Christian could say, well, those are really only very big coincidences. For instance, when I came to Westminster in 2006, and those of you who are on the search committee and those of you who have been here since then know that evangelism has been a very big uh, part of of uh, why, what I think God called me to do. Um, however, I'm not gifted in evangelism. So I have been praying earnestly for God to send an evangelist to our congregation. Because I know that if a church is not overtly and actively evangelizing its community... It is dying a slow death because a church that does not evangelize is disobeying Christ in a primary task that God has given the church to do. And I know how easy it is to put that, put evangelism off to the side. And me not being gifted in evangelism, I, I prayed earnestly for years, God bring an evangelist. I prayed for nine years. And then God gave me the answer to that prayer along with all the interest that had accrued with it uh, in walks Jimbo Mullen and his family. And I believe that Jimbo is a part of our congregation in response to my prayers. And then after Jimbo was here, Uh, After I got back from Uganda, we went and had a meeting over in St. Petersburg, uh, several of us, um, with um, Al Baker, who was with me in in Uganda, and he said, you've got to have an early morning prayer meeting. And after that meeting, we determined, we're going to have an early morning prayer meeting. We decided we were going to meet at 5 a.m. It's been two years or so, and we have been meeting faithfully. I think we've probably missed three or four Uh, Wednesdays because of Thanksgiving and Christmas. Otherwise, we have been praying faithfully at 5 a.m. And this prayer meeting is centered on the evangelistic ministry of the church. We pray for some pressing church needs uh, and concerns that are before us. But mainly we pray for the outreach of the church. Has God answered any of those prayers that we have been praying for the past two years? Well... We are on the verge of planning a church in College Hill, which is the absolute most dangerous neighborhood in Tampa. Also, Jimbo is out evangelizing every week. And if you get his little text um, praise reports about the, the evangelism, you'll see that God is indeed answering our prayers. And in the jails. Almost the whole pod, it seems like, has become a Christian under Jimbo's ministry. It's a remarkable thing. But in College Hill, Jimbo calls it the war zone. He goes there and does evangelism in that neighborhood every week without fail. I've gone with him to do evangelism. Everybody in the neighborhood knows him. We pulled up and we got out of the car uh, to greet some people sitting underneath a tree. And all of a sudden, this guy pulls over in his car, jumps out and calls me over. He wants me to pray with him. Um, Is that supposed to be happening? That people are pulling over on the side of the road and asking a stranger to come pray with them? Are people in such a hard neighborhood supposed to be that open and that eager to hear the gospel and then to reach out to us for us to pray with them? No, that's not normal. Why is it happening? I believe it's the 5 a.m. prayer meeting that we have every Wednesday morning. On another occasion, I was driving around College Hill by myself and I was praying for the community on the way back from a meeting in Tampa. I saw what I believe to be the perfect place to hold our worship services. And this the facility there is managed by Hillsborough County Parks and Recreation. And when I saw that my heart sank just a bit. Because money would not be the primary issue. Uh rather the uh, primary issue would be whether they would be willing to let us use the facility. You know, a private business, you can negotiate price and maybe get in. But, you know, the parks and recreation, if someone's a non-Christian and is opposed to Christianity and they're responsible for loaning or for, for us using that facility, they probably would say no without giving in a second thought and not listening to any of our appeals. So I asked the session in April to specifically pray that uh, God would let us use this facility to hold our worship services. We also prayed in the 5 a.m. prayer meetings about this. Well, about a month ago, Jimbo and I went to speak to the Parks and Recreation people. The building, when we got there and rang the bell, it was locked up tight. But we saw a doorbell. Jim, or well, we rang the doorbell. Jimbo being Jimbo, being a bit aggressive, rang the doorbell again and again to make sure, you know, if uh, someone was there and they didn't hear it, they would hear it. All of a sudden, this womba I mean, this woman came uh, running around the corner from inside the building, and I could see that she was upset. And when she unlocked the door, her whole expression changed. Uh, she said, when she came around the corner to yell at the people ringing at the door, ringing the doorbell, but she saw Christ on our shirts. She knew that she needed to treat us well because Jimbo had his Christ satisfied shirt on. Well, if I'm going to be up there in College Hill, I'm going to make sure everybody knows that I'm with this big guy. So I had a Christ satisfied shirt on, and Miss Lafay is a Christian. And when I told her we wanted to start a church in College Hill and we wanted to use this facility, she ran up and hugged me. And then she ran over and hugged Jimbo. Needless to say, we will be able to use the the facility. We've gotten permission. And it will cost us $40 a week for a space as large as our fellowship hall. In other words, God answers prayer. Our little church here in Brandon is on the verge of planning an inner-city church in the community with the worst reputation in Tampa. This was not some grand scheme that I dreamed up or we dreamed up as a session. It almost is if God is pushing us forward, and I believe it is. I believe with all my heart it is in response to prayer. So these are a couple of examples of how God answers prayer. Now on to b- briefly examine our text. We'll see how these stories about prayer tie in. So uh, the passage that Justin read took place about 850 years before Christ was born. The king of Syria, he's not named, has probably been Hadad II. Um, and uh, the king of Israel who was probably uh, Jehoram. Uh, We meet them in this passage. And what happened was the king of Syria was invading Israel, but Israel's king seemed to know all of the plans that the king of Syria was making. You know, when an enemy regularly eludes your battle plans, one cannot help but become suspicious that someone in your circle is leaking the information. What was happening was God would tell Elisha where the king of Syria would be, and then Elisha would tell the king of Israel, thereby ruining the king of Syria's battle plans. So the king of Syria decided there's got to be a mole or a traitor in his inner circle who was supplying these military leaks to Israel. So, one day while he had gathered his war council around, the king's frustration uh, overflowed. And he said in verse 11, "...will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel?" And then it's kind of interesting, a little bit funny, it's only then that his underlings tell him what they seem to have known all along. They said in verse 12, "...none, my lord, none of us are for Israel." But Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Well, now the king of Syria naturally wants to know where he can find Elisha so he can eliminate him. When the king of Syria found out that Elisha was in Dothan, he sent horses, chariots, and a large army to surround the city. And the cities there... Uh, like Dothan was not a city like we would think of Brandon. Much smaller, much more compact. You may remember that Elisha's first apprentice fell prey, or, or um, yeah, you know, he fell prey to greed, and he was struck with leprosy. So Elisha has a new apprentice. We don't know his name. Uh, the Bible says that he was young, but you can imagine what a great honor it would be for this new young apprentice to be serving under Elisha. He would likely be in line to be Elisha's successor. Even though he was still a servant, still young, he must have been greatly envied and... um respected by the other prophets. When God prepares someone for ministry, he will often teach him the hardest lessons first. The lessons about suffering, the lessons about humility, the lessons about trusting God when things are most dire. So I think that's what's happening here is God begins teaching this young apprentice what it means to serve the Lord. So we come to verse 15. Elisha's servant woke up and he found that the whole city was surrounded by the Syrians. So he's terrified. And in my mind's eye, I see him running into the tent where Elisha is still asleep. And he, he takes his master and begins shaking him violently. And in panic, he cries out, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Well, what does Elisha do? He does two things for his young servant that I want us to see. First of all, he prays for his eyes to be opened, to see beyond the earthly dimension. He gives his young fearful servant a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, to see what is really Happening, He allowed his servant to see that God is fully in control of the situation. Look at verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And so, the Syrians have surrounded Dothan. But the Syrians are surrounded by the angels of God in much greater number than um, than there were uh, Syrian army uh, soldiers and, and chariots. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. In two earthly appearances, when Elisha's servant woke up, came out and saw that the city was surrounded. The situation was dire. But from God's point of view, the king of Assyria was no threat at all. When we are facing trials, those trials, when we're looking at those trials and focused in on them, and that's all that we see in our vision is the trial, the hardship, the suffering, what ends up happening is that trial grows bigger and bigger because we have taken our eyes off the Lord. But when we put our eyes on the Lord first, those trials begin to shrink in size because we remember that those trials fit very easily into the palm of God just as we are in the palm of God. That peek behind the curtain gives us insight about our lives as Christians. God is in control of our lives and our hardships and our suffering even as He was in charge in Elisha's day. God has already decided the length of your days. He has marked out the path of your life. Every moment, every circumstances, every trial has already been planned out by God who loves you. The Apostle Paul teaches us that we are in God's hands. And He is in complete control. In Romans chapter 8, He says that from outward appearances, it looks as if He and His companions were just sheep to be slaughtered. But in reality, because God is in control, they were not just conquerors, but more than conquerors. Listen to Romans 8. Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered from an earthly standpoint. But from God's standpoint... In verse 37, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, You can say along with David in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encampments Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Why can He be confident when the whole world is arrayed against Him? Because God is in control. And God is in control of your life as well. So the first thing that Elisha did was assure his young servant that God is in control. When hardships and trials and suffering come upon you, take a deep breath and remember that God is in control. And that'll bring a whole new perspective to your suffering and your trials and your hardships. Now, the second thing that Elisha did for his young servant was actually what he did not do. He did not treat the weak faith of his young servant with contempt or try and shame him because of his weak faith. Rather, he prayed for him that God would reassure him. God is not an angry God waiting for His children to get out of line so He can lower the boom on them so that He can punish them. Rather, God told Isaiah a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. God will not try to beat up or try and break a young Christian who is struggling with doubt and fear. And people tell me from time to time that uh, because they are struggling with doubt, that God's allowing bad things to happen to them. God dealt gently with this young servant of Elisha. He didn't try and break him. Rather, God said to him through Elisha, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. In all likelihood, God will probably not peel back the curtain and let you see the legions of angels all around you. But they're there. Paul says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Rather we wrestle with the principalities and powers of darkness. But we don't we do the wrestling and prayer asking God for help. The scripture tells us that the angels do our fighting for us, that God does his our fighting for us. So you may not God may not allow you to see behind the curtain that you can lean on his everlasting arms Nonetheless, if you're walking through the heartbreak of family of a family breakdown, or perhaps crushed by marital strife, maybe you're awaiting the results of a biopsy, or you're waiting into one of those times that you just really hate—those times of reoccurring depression. For a Christian, these things are not, nor are ever. They are never punishments sent from God. God says to you, don't be afraid. Psalm 34 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him, and He delivers them. God did deliver Elisha and his young apprentice. Typically, God does not deliver us in the same way every time. Maybe He delivers us one way one time and another way another time. Why does He do that? Why doesn't He use a uniform way of delivering us? Well, I think well, God is the good shepherd. He knows exactly what we need. He tailors His deliverance and His care for us specifically for us. And also, I think that... uh He uses different means so that we're not in the habit of looking at the means for how He delivers us, but rather we look up to Him who is the One who is actually delivering us. We look to God Himself. Just to bring this to a conclusion, the last part of how God delivered Elisha and his servant is kind of humorous. Elisha's first prayer was for God to open His servant's eyes. His second prayer here in this passage, however, is that God would blind the Syrians. It's not the usual word for blind here. It's a different word for blind. The idea is He overwhelmed them with brightness of light so that they were not able to see clearly. And so when they were helpless, He said, Well, I will lead you to the person you're seeking. And of course, he led them to the king of Israel. And then he prayed a third time, prayed the same thing as he prayed for his young servant Lord, open their eyes. But instead of seeing into the spiritual realm, they saw, uh, they regained their clearness of sight and saw that they were right in the midst of Israel's army. But instead of allowing Israel's army to kill them, Elisha said, don't do that. Throw a banquet for them and send them on their way. God's deliverance of Elisha resulted in mercy for the Syrians. God uses His mercy in our lives so that we can be instruments of mercy in the lives of unbelievers and testify to His grace. Del Patton's out of town right now. But uh, yeah, he almost died. And God delivered him. And then God used him to testify to everybody that took care of him in the hospital of God's grace. And this is what God's doing here with the Syrians. He's using His deliverance of Elisha and his servant to testify to His own goodness To the Syrians. All right. What's the takeaway? Well, the takeaway is that God is at work in your life. He is always at work, even if you are not allowed to peek behind the curtain and see what He's doing. Our God is a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. Don't be discouraged if you don't see the answers that you expect. Just know that God is working behind the scenes, behind the curtain, if you will, to bring about His good, His glory, and His love for you. He is at work in your life. He will not let you go out of His grip. How do I know this? Jesus Christ died on the cross for His people. If God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things that we ask for in prayer? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, just as I meditate on Your intercession at the Father's right hand as I've been preaching on how You delight in us and delight to answer prayer, in ways that are best for us even when we don't know what we should pray. It is a joy to be uh, mouthing this prayer uh, to You right now. God, I pray that You would encourage Your saints who are discouraged. Lord, I pray that You would lift up Your saints that are downcast. Lord, I pray that You would build us up in our trust in Christ And remind us that when we are going through the difficulties that He loves us so and He has not ever let go of us. And Lord, if there are any here who do not know Jesus Christ, who are missing out on the love of God, I pray You would draw them powerfully to Yourself. I pray in Jesus' name, Amen.